Regardless of what the church says otherwise, it seems like the message we keep getting as congregational leaders is size matters. So we've come together to seek a different message and to identify and amplify the beauty and grace of small, small churches. No matter the impact you think you're making, join us to hear more about small churches making big impacts with God walking right alongside. You're with the Small Churches Big Impact Collective. In today's episode, hosted by me, Susie Schaefer, and me, Kit Lonergan, we're back with Small Churches Big Impact Collective to talk about our transitions out of small churches into bigger systems. And we're joined today by Shanna McCauley. So Kit, you and I have both changed our roles in the church since the first season of this podcast. Why don't you tell us what you're doing these days? So in the first season, I was rector of St. James Episcopal Church in Groveland, Massachusetts, and I was a three-quarter time priest. And in the winter of 2021, I transitioned from St. James to Trinity Church in the city of Boston, where I now serve as priest for Welcome and Care, which is a full-time position. And it's a staff of three full-time priests and three associate part-time priests and a congregation of about 2,000. And so, Susie, you have changed as well. Tell us a little bit about that transition. So we changed around the same time. I was, during the first season of this podcast, the vicar of St. John's at Clinton in Michigan, where I served for about nine and a half years before I left that congregation to join our diocesan staff in Michigan. I now work for the bishop as the associate for transitions and local formation, where I work with people and churches who are discerning what is next in their life and ministry. One of the conversations that Susie and I had before was about not just the beauty and impact of small churches, but how we are called to different work, that somehow God does the calling and hopefully a church does the hiring, and to love the congregations that you are part of. And also, what a great opportunity it is for us to take everything that we've learned and appreciate it in the beauty of smaller parishes and apply them not only the differences in a larger system, but what is very much the same, what we have learned and what gifts and skill sets that we have that are specifically formed in smaller systems that are not just translatable, but livening for a larger system. And it's a great grace to have Shanna McCauley with us. And so Shanna, please tell us a little bit about where you've come from and where you are. Hi, I'm Shanna. For 11 years before my current position, I was the vicar of St. Edwards in Silverton, Oregon, which is east of Salem, Oregon. It's a small town, around 10,000 people. There were uh, 27 churches when I got there in a place that is fairly not churched people. It was a really small congregation. I always said small but mighty. 20 on a Sunday was a big deal, but we did some really big things together. So most Sundays, it didn't feel as small as it is it was. And around the same time as you all, I transitioned to Trinity Cathedral in Portland, Oregon, um, which is large, urban, and right downtown. We have 
between 400 and 500 on a Sunday. Although, you know, when I transitioned first in COVID, I was literally preaching to the choir, all spread out 18 feet apart in the sanctuary. And none of them could hear me while I was preaching. So because they didn't turn on the house mics. So it was a really interesting transition. That sounds terrifying, actually. It was super weird. I mean, to be preaching to, be preaching to, people, to people who couldn't respond at all. Totally. I mean, they're they're like looking at their phones because they, they can't hear me at all. It was really weird. This is behind the scenes of church uh, during the pandemic, friends, and how weird it was. So one of the things that in our conversations with SCBI is that some of the things we noticed were very different in how we were functioning, what our role was, what gifts were needed. And some things were very much the same. And some things we were actually pretty darn good at because of the work we did in smaller parishes. And we thought it was a great opportunity to lift those up because there are so many places and people telling us that smaller church ministry and larger church ministry are two different things. They are. Let's not pretend that they are not. There is no such thing as a baby big church. And I can tell you that there are many people who questioned whether I could serve in a large church, in a large system, because I had come from a smaller church. In fact, that had been a question in at least two interviews I had. And it was more than a little insulting to my congregation and to me. And so there is an incredible amount of beauty in what we do. So let's talk a little bit about this. Yeah, I think there was a lot of question around that for for the people around me. When I was, you know, halftime in my little church, sort of looking for what was next. Like I, there was a small church track in the church and a big church track and maybe self-imposed, but it felt a little bit like like I was on this small church track in a way that the system couldn't bear a bigger imagination for what I was capable of. And it was really frustrating because I felt like I had the ability and the experience for something else, for a bigger system or a different system, but the church didn't have the imagination for that for me. But what, what I know, having gone from really, really small to pretty big, at least for the Episcopal Church, is that small church ministry really trained me for scrappiness. There aren't a lot of things that I I feel overwhelmed by or that I feel like I, I can't take on. There are things that I don't know, right, and things that I have to learn about or check with colleagues on, but I feel really capable of that. I'm really used to making the most of a little bit and recognizing that that I have to reach out to colleagues, that there are other people with the experiences that I'm looking for in all likelihood. And when you're in a small church, I didn't have the opportunity to spend money talking to professionals. And so I had to call my friends who had done a podcast and ask, you know, how did you do this live streaming thing? Or, you know, what what did that look like? How did you start posting your sermons in a way that your parishioners could access because I didn't have access to somebody who could do the things for me. Two of the things that I've noticed that are actually massive assets are the scrappiness and what can you do with very little. So it forces imagination and creativity in a way that if you can't afford a packaged program, 
then at some point you're going to create some of your own. And the other thing that I've noticed is, is that uh, I'm a generalist. I can do just about anything in the church. I can fill out a parochial report. I can run an annual meeting. I can help people die. I can bury them. I can welcome new children. And that's a little bit different in a larger system where you have a particular portfolio, where there are some things you do and some things you don't. And Susie, I bet that you have some very specific experience working in the diocesan staff now. Right, because we're even more portfolio driven than possibly even in a regular congregation, just because the scope of the work is big and different. And so I said my title is Associate for Transition and Local Formation. So I work with very specific programs and I don't work with very specific programs. Although I do remember, and this has been echoed in my time on diocesan staff, that no matter where you serve, parochial reports are actually still annoying at any size and any context. (laughs) Although now I have used reason to use the data, so that's helpful. So the funny idea about portfolios is that there's umbrellas of ministry. And in a bigger system, I still may not know how to do all of the things that are in my portfolio because there's actually other people who do them. And yet there is still, when it comes to the institutional memory around a particular program or an altar guild tradition, there is still Miss Janet who actually holds all the knowledge, even in these huge systems, a system as big as a diocese. And I don't know if you all have found that similarity. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. I think that that's, that is one of the things that surprised me that, that in a large system, even with very specifically separate portfolios, some of the congregational systems, the way a church works still happens. There is Miss Janet who knows everything, or maybe there's two Miss Janets. They kind of split the time. But inevitably, some of the systems that do happen in churches just by virtue of being kind of a a volunteer organization, they exist. And I kind of thought that that wouldn't be the case. I thought that there would be like a primer or a customary for everything. And no, part of it is still, well, this is how it's always been. And I'm really familiar with that from smaller church ministry. I also thought that in a big system, there would be, there would be, this is um, humorous now as uh, being where I am, but I thought that there would be more succession that I, I thought that it was a particular small church thing that once somebody took over the altar guild, they were stuck until they died. But it turns out, <laughs> it turns out that even in big systems, that's true where you get somebody in a position and they just, hold it for better or worse for them and for the institution until they're done with it. And and sometimes, just like in small churches, until they're spectacularly done with it, right, where they've just, they're done and they say so. And then two years later, they're like, no, seriously, I'm, I need to stop. And then two years later, they're like, no, really, I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. One of the conversations that the three of us had prior to this podcast was that this kind of conversation is a great fourth grade essay. What is the same and what is different? Knowing that there are things that are the same and things that are different as we change roles, but we're still priests. So there's much the same, but then how we priest is different. And one of the things that I will say that's very different is your reach. So what your public persona is 
and how many people think they know you and have a relationship with you because you're shepherding so many more people. And I keep forgetting every Sunday that we're on a live stream until someone like my mother texts me after the ch- after church and comments on my hair <laughs> and how I had chosen to wear it that day. And all of a sudden, something that had been a very private, familial, in some ways, ritual, and where it was kind of a, a differently sacred space, it is just far more public. And, and that's an ongoing conversation that I have with myself and my colleagues and my family. How much do the outside folks get without me sharing everything. Yes. I am. So we had this, I I feel like in, in a big system, I am both hyper visible and invisible at times. So I will, if I show up at a parish event, people will say, you know, how do I know you? And I'm like, uh, what, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a priest here. One of the things that happened at a, a beach weekend. So it was this thing where everyone was kind of gathering and I was, you know, in regular clothes with my kids. And I was talking to this couple that I didn't really recognize, which happens sometimes in a big system. And I said, you know, do you come to Trinity? Are you, are you regulars? And the woman said, we come on YouTube. So we're, we're faithful, but you don't see us for the most part. And I'm a little starstruck right now. And it was, it took me a minute to realize what you were saying. And I was like, oh my God, no, you're not. Stop it. Like, <laughs> what do you mean you're starstruck? Like, uh, you know, and then of course I quickly turned around to my kids and said, look, I'm a YouTuber, but it's a, but it's a really weird thing to, to, for that, for that sort of one way interaction with people where in, in some ways we're really, really intimate with people that we don't ever see or know. Yeah, I have found that particularly when I'm preaching, I'd be curious about your all's experience of that too. You know, in in my former church, even in some of the bigger congregations I've served, before I was the small church vicar, you plan your preaching with particular people in mind. You're you're thinking about the prayer requests and the needs and the lives of your people. I, I preach in different congregations all the time. And the people that I know well and work closely with and have their stories and their journeys on my mind are rarely the people I'm in worship with. There's often one or two of them at any given congregation, but the people I do ministry with are not the people I worship with on a weekly basis, which is a whole different thing. But I imagine that is more of a diocesan thing than a large church thing. So I think I experience a lot more projection where people, people really like me, but they, I'm like, you don't, you don't know me well enough to like me as much as you do, or they hate me because of something. And again, I'm like, oh, you don't, you don't know me enough to hate me the way that you do, or that, you know, somebody said that I was intellectually bankrupt one time because they didn't like my sermon. Susie, I feel like you must get so much more because people know of you, right? They know that, you know, you are of the bishop staff, but they don't actually get to interact with you, not even occasionally at coffee hour, right? This is their once a year experience of you or some, something much bigger like that. It is really the big difference, the sense of being very well known, but not known at all. Yeah. 
feel like there's a really good Indigo Girls line about this. <laughs> it's from Language and the Kiss. But it's, I think, and I would, I would say this. It's interesting what you say about preaching because before I would preach to the congregation and I would pre- preach because of a congregational concern or individual concerns. And because everyone was so close or not so close, but everyone had these ongoing relationships with one another, one person's challenge was then shared by more people. There was a death in one family. Other people felt it. Um, it is, we are a, we're both a local church and a destination church where I serve right now. So people come from away. They come from down the street. Some people come for the music. We have an incredibly strong music program and the church historically has been known for preaching. And what is interesting is that because of the size, I can know a few pastoral things to preach on, things that I keep in the back of my prayer life and my mind when I'm preparing. But also there is an overarching gist of how each one of us preaches. Because there's a different person every week, there has to be, if not organization, then cohesion to our overall message, which is different. So I find myself listening, really loving to hear other people's sermons. That's one of the reasons I was excited to go in a multi-staff parish. You know, on, on occasion, after eight years, got really tired of my own voice. In fact, other people would quote things back to me and I go, that's really good. That'll preach. And they go, you said that two weeks ago. And I go, I have no memory of that. Your preaching is held to a different accountability. It's held to more of how do you preach for the whole body of Christ and in conjunction with the whole body of Christ, including your colleagues, instead of maybe what you want to preach that day. And that's a shift. It's interesting how many people will come up to you and go, oh, you preached that for me. And I go, I don't, I don't know you well enough to preach that for you or at you. This is just what the word does. What you hear from the word, it has to be fairly diverse because we have a far more diverse congregation at this time. So do you feel like that hems you in? Like, are you, do you think more about the broader reach? Like, are you more careful politically, for instance, about not specifically candidates, right? But like about broader issues that are societal or are you less careful because you have a bigger reach? I will say that seven and a half years of doing my own thing in a corner of the world where maybe only 70 people heard me on a Sunday. On occasion, I miss that because of those relationships cultivated after so much time. And maybe after seven years, I'll feel the same way with this congregation. I mean, we're still in our first two years together. Um, That I could take more risks because of the relationships I had. And because I knew that this was for them and they knew it was for them. And that I wasn't simply using the pulpit as some kind of soapbox, which I think people have done in the past. I miss preaching every week, but man, and the pressure is on, I think, when you don't preach as often. Shanna, do you preach every other week? No, no, I preach. I don't know. I think I've preached like five or six times this year, this liturgical year, because there's a lot of preachers in our in our system. There's two full-time priests. There's a We have a, a one-quarter-time associate. We have a pile of retired associates who interact in our system some, 
And then we have a couple of lay canons and a transitional deacon. So we have a whole lot of people in the system, which on the one hand is really lovely because it gives me time to really prepare for that one sermon that I still write on Saturday night. I do miss the conversational aspect. Like you said, I, I knew this person, I knew this person. When I was preaching in a small place to be a script preacher, just it felt too formal and it felt too it, like it separated us too much. And so I gave up the script for Lent one year and, and I, I didn't look back. After that, I didn't preach from a script anymore because I knew them. I loved them. They knew me. They loved me. And so and, and I say that they loved me because if you didn't love me in a small place, people just had to move on because I was the priest. I was the staff person. They were the people that I loved and I was the person they loved for better or worse. And I knew that if this person was falling asleep, that was normal. And if this person was falling asleep, I was going too long. Or if this person had tuned out like, okay, it's time to land the ship, right? Like whatever I've said, it's it's done. I'm done, right? You can't do that in a big place because I can't even see all the faces, right? Kit, I really liked what you said about the the need to preach with the whole body of Christ in mind. That really resonates for me as someone working in a regional role. And also, I'm really struck by what you're saying. The idea that somebody hears the sermon and says, that one was for me. I feel like that hasn't changed in any context I've preached in, right? That that there's that sense that this is how the word comes alive in our midst and that there is somebody sitting there who feels very touched and seen by a sermon, even if you've actually never met them before and couldn't possibly have preached a sermon for them. Or if you've known them for eight years and you buried their spouse and baptized their grandkids and still didn't think you wrote the sermon specifically for them. That that works that way, no matter what size we are. Susie, how is this different for you? You have this really unique relationship with the church where you're in a really big system, and also you are still serving lots of small places. How do those two things interact where you're still serving small congregations, probably most Sundays, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. I don't do a ton of supply at our larger places because they have more than one clergy and they don't need supplies often. So going to the skills that we've carried with us, flexibility is probably my top. And I have a feeling my some of my colleagues would listen to this and laugh really hard because I'm actually not that flexible of a person on many things. <laughs> but walking into a congregation, especially post-COVID where everyone does communion super different and you never know what an altar setup is going to look like when you walk in. My experience of small church leadership made it easier to simply say, we're here to worship God. And if that includes running to find an extra cruet, God will still be praised. And it's fine in a way that the sort of detail-oriented structure needed to run really big systems doesn't always allow for that kind of last-minute flexibility. It's the thing about turning a large ship. So I will say that that has been a learning about how long change takes, how, I won't say inflexible, but how predictable we need systems to be in order to operate. 
I am unused to that. I, I, one of my joys was sometimes we'd have a good idea a few days before Sunday and we'd be like, all right, let's throw that in. I have used the phrase a lot at Trinity. We're going to throw some spaghetti on the wall and see if it sticks. And apparently this is not a congregation that throws pasta in the house a whole lot. So the imagery only resonated with a few. It's a learning. How many things need to be done? How long in advance? How far in advance? And once we've made that decision, there we've we've agreed as a as also as a community and as a team that we won't relitigate it. We can we do a lot of PMRs. We do a lot of we look back at what we've done and what we can do differently. We have some accountability with that structure, and that's a great thing because we have people with who literally work in the business office and don't attend Sunday service, but they can tell us how our offertory website is going and our QR codes. I never thought I'd say QR code so much in the church, by the way. And uh, so this is, this is what's different. I don't know. I don't need to know how to make a QR code at this job. In my last job, I did. My last job, I remember one of our colleagues was making these beautiful advent calendars during the pandemic. And so you would give her an image of your church and she would kind of make it artsy. And then I think later on, she's like, hey, does anyone have like a good adult formation? I'm like, here's my Mr. Rogers. It was so barter because you had to share with people. And now you can pay for things. That is something I'm unused to. It's the value of time and the value of money is different. And I still, I still look on free sites for things we need for the church. And that is, instead of paying the $10 it would cost, I go, well, I can just pick up a free Adirondack chair. It will only take me 45 minutes to do that, but I don't have 45 minutes anymore. It's just a different exchange and economy that I'm still living into. Because as you said earlier, Shanna, I was taught that we have no money. So figure it out. If you need plumbing, someone's probably a plumber or someone has a brother or someone here in Massachusetts. Everyone knows a guy. One of the things that is in my portfolio is diocesan liturgies, especially around ordinations and when new clergy come to a congregation. And one of the earlier services I was planning, the bulletin was getting printed the day before the service and needed to go. And it's not normally an office day for me. I live 45 minutes to an hour from the cathedral, so I don't go every day. Uh, But I told the administrator, I said, I'm happy to drive in just so I can help fold and staple the bulletins so they're ready to go. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she's like, you know that the copier just does that, right? No, no, we did not know that the copier could do that. So I will say that's a shift also is the economy of time in what I can offer for pastoral care. What's one of the biggest reaches for me, and I would say that this is, you know, not private information nor hidden from my colleagues, is the pastoral care is not hard. The scope of it and then making the accountability for it. So where do you write it down? Who gets to see it? How do you transmit information among clergy so that either we're not triangulated or we're not working in silos? And this is really some of the work that our parish is doing 
right now is de-siloing everything because it's so much easier to everyone has their portfolio. You just have, but then you kind of come up with three little churches and that's not the vision that I think that we should have. But the scope of how many people and the type of care we can offer, one of the things it was, it's think, it, I didn't think of it this way, Shannon, but I am right now is that even if I spend about 20 minutes on the phone with someone, they go, thank you so much. I know how busy you are. And I'm literally priest for welcome and care. I go, so this is what I do. <laughs> this is what a priest does. This is what the church does. The church cares. And, and, but the economy is just a very different thing about how, you know, I could spend three hours with a family when someone died in my previous parish. And sometimes that would be appropriate. That would be the normal thing to do because it wouldn't just be with the family. You would know the cousins, you'd know the other family members, um, you would know the funeral home people. Uh, you know, there is a different set of relationships. Um, and I do miss that. I, I miss, um, funny enough, I felt like I had more time sometimes when I worked part-time um, because I chose my priorities. And in this particular call and in a larger system, I don't choose my priorities um, ideally, they're done in conjunction and conversation and in collaboration, but there's a lot more to get done. People thought it would be much harder for me to serve a large church. And they just kept saying, you know, oh, is this really different? And I don't know. There's only so many times you can look at people with love and say, church people be church people. Like people be churchy no matter what. You have all of these people with their areas. None of that is different. And I said, honestly, the thing that kept me up at night was figuring out how to put an away message on Outlook. I, I just didn't know how to do it. And, and that took up the majority of my time. And I think that's a great metaphor is that sometimes the church is just the church. We, the systems which support it are just, we make them more complicated. Kit, I wanted to go back to your sense of talking about capacity and feeling like you had more time working part-time. So I think unlike the two of you, I ac actually still part-time. I'm more hours than I was before, but still not full-time. And whether we are part-time in a small church or full-time in a big church or some other combination of hours and context, the question for all of us that doesn't change is capacity and priorities. How do we decide with the time and hours and energy we have available to do the best work we can for the church and for God's people in the world? And that is one of the things that surprised me about how one of the things I had to get used to in being a vicar in a small church, which a friend of mine advised me, she says, if you're half time, expect everything to take twice as long. And get used to stuff just not being able to happen. You can't do everything. And that didn't change when I worked bigger hours with more administrative support in a larger system with more people. There is still things that just can't get done by me because I did not get an extra day in the week when I moved to a bigger system. I think a parallel idea to capacity 
is also the way we can talk ourselves out of good ministry and blame it on our size. The small church where I served did a lot of good stuff and sometimes would have good ideas and say, oh, we can't do that. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. We don't have a big enough building. But the flip is also, well, that's a good idea, but we would have had to plan it six months ago. You are so right. And and I... Something so in our in a previous conversation, Shanna mentioned something about the ideal Episcopal church size. And what we were told for so many years is that we were too small to matter. We were too temporary. We could close at any time. Our our finances, you know, I still say are. I am I still believe that the church I served before is still one of the greatest places that I have experienced God's grace. But there's this what size is perfect? Because we're too big for a lot of things. And we have too many, we're too almost diverse and wide. And you're right, everything is planned a year ahead in advance. So Shannon, can I invite you to talk a little bit about from your perspective? Seminary trained me for the system that I'm in, which is so rare. But seminary trained me to be the priest that had time to do some study, which I never could do in a small place, unless I did it on my own time when I was falling asleep because I'm a mom and because the rest of things are sort of planned for about 150 ASA. And so, you know, there were, I, I think we engaged three different stewardship programs in 11 years in my last parish where it was like, oh no, this is the one that's going to save our budget, right? If we could just, it, it's always, if we could just, right? So if we could just do this one thing, and look at this, it's all magical. It's all in the box. And they send you pledge cards and they send you videos and here's the reading and you can do this adult ed around it. And it was always like, oh my God, I mean, who has time for this? I don't, I'm half time. And then you have to buy 150 pledge cards because they only come in these giant packs. We just used the pledge card for like three years, even though the program wasn't right. But because we had <laughs> this pile of pledge That's cards, awesome. it was like, well, all right, I guess we're going to use these again. Stewardship. Right, right. And we'll just That's cross out stewardship. the 2012 and <laughs> whatever it is, right? And it, eventually I stopped doing that because so much of stewardship is relational. We had 13 pledges at my last place. We have over 750 at my new place. And it's still very, very relational. I mean, there's so many programs that weren't right for my teeny tiny parish and they, they aren't right for my big place. I felt like it was a a judgment on our small place. Like you guys can use a little bit of this, but Really, it's not made for you, even though it says it's plug and play. And and now on the other end of it, I'm like, oh, wait, it doesn't make sense on either end. It seems to me like at both ends of the spectrum, we can feel like, you know, Goldilocks has rejected us for being too hot or too cold. And we're still trying to find the what's right. <laughs> but I just don't yeah. think the church is the same as bowls of porridge or chairs. Wherever we're doing ministry, understanding our context and our culture and our system is what makes it effective. I think about communication, which is so hard. In congregations where you have different people every week because you're a destination church or a, a diocese where you actually have 75 congregations, it's still just figuring out what works. You know, I knew who in my small church would make sure everyone found out what they needed to know. 
right? Like, I know exactly who those people are. And there's still those people in the bigger system. There's more of them. But it's still the same sort of skill of, (laughs) for better or for worse, throwing spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks. (laughs) Even if we're just pretending that it's more systematic than that. (laughs) I think that's the beauty of church, is that it's supposed to be a place, not of perfection, but of intention and how you imagine that. And one of the things that I think struck me in serving the congregation, and granted that we were doing this podcast about five years into my serving, my previous congregation was that you love the people you have. And I think that's an incredibly powerful thing that that remains. You know, we love the tourists who come in and just start taking photos in the middle of liturgy or who get in the way of the procession and you're trying to be nice, be like, you're going to be trampled by a hundred choristers. One of the new practices that we've had is we've stopped asking people when they introduce themselves, how long have you been here? Because it's this kind of ownership of, of who's more important, who has more power. It's been really interesting how people still clutch to that power. And, and inevitably what we're here to do is serve, you know, and, and how you do that with intention and hopefully with good grace and knowing that some spaghetti will just bounce off and some will stick. And how do you cultivate practices where love is the goal instead of perfection? And I think that that's one of the reasons I joined this parish, that I was really excited about that. One of the things I want us to make sure that we do, share one thing that we learned at a small church that's been good for us. Like, what's something that I can do really well in a larger parish? So what's your one thing? Should I go first? While you think. So oftentimes we host very large funerals of people who are well-known. And partially it's just because we're one of the largest churches in Boston, size-wise and capacity-wise. And sometimes it's just because we're right in the center and we're, we're awfully pretty as a church. So we did a large funeral, which was not the only one for Dr. Paul Farmer. We had a lot of musicians come in and we had this piano. We couldn't, because of the size of the church, we can't do, you know, a baby grand, like it just, it's an older church. So that's one thing I'm really good at is Old churches be old churches, and you can only do a certain amount to them. But we pulled out the practice piano, except you could see the inside. There wasn't like a back panel to it. And we realized that on the live stream, it just looked terrible. And there was no way to hide it. This is the morning of the funeral that we discover this. And in looking at it, someone came up and said, I think we need to put it in a different position. I think we need to reshift this, which would mean shifting 50 people, including three bishops, about where they were sitting. And like you said, Shanna, I can come up with stuff last minute. And I said, get me a box of thumbtacks, get me a black Sharpie, and if we have black material, or run across the street to a CVS and get me some poster board. They found some leftover black fabric in church school. We colored in the tacks so that they were black with a black Sharpie so that it looked seamless. It's still up. 
that makeshift thing is still up. And a mu- one of the musicians was like, how did you think of that? And I go, how did you not? When in doubt, you go into the church school closet because they have everything you could need. I don't get a chance to use those skills, which is fix this on a dime and for a dime. I do miss those. And I'm ridiculously proud of that moment. All right, guys, how about you? So uh, two things. One is that I I believed this when I was interviewing, and I, I have found this to be true, which is that a big church is largely a collection of small churches, like our catechesis, that even year by year they have, you know, this year is this congregation. And, and so it's this overlapped interaction of lots of smaller congregations where these people know these people really well and they care for them. And these are the people that they hang out with at coffee hour. It's just a whole bunch of those, which is, that's a ministry I know. I know how to minister to groups like that. And I'm learning how to minister to a bunch of groups all together in a place like that. And then the other thing for me is it's very similar to what you said, but I, I really, I really can flex. So if, for instance, my colleagues are about to learn something new about me, but if somebody who is preaching is late on a Sunday morning, I am starting to work through what I'm going to preach just in case they don't show up. So because I, I don't want to be actually working that out during the epistle. Right. But, you know, give me an hour and I can put together some thoughts Likewise, if if, some, if we have somebody new in our chancel, which we do a lot, I can sort of anticipate like, okay, here's a place where we do things a certain way and they might not know to anticipate this. And so how can I very subtly um, help them to be in the right place so that they don't feel really like awkward or like they don't know what they're doing? I sort of anticipate the behind the scenes of all of that. Because in a small place, there's a lower expectation of professionalness because we're all a family. But also in a small place, you just have to flex like, oh, gosh, there's now a baby who's running around the altar. And I have to figure out how to do the Eucharistic prayer over the top of this adorable little being that everybody is watching and listening, not as scotch to me, right? And and rightfully, right? You've got this adorable two-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Look, look at the two-year-old. We will we'll get communion, right? Because we are communion together. So I think for me, and Shanna, your story of uh, kid running around while you're presiding and being able to see that as a joyful thing in our midst, I think that is gets at probably the deepest skill I brought with me, which is the ability to see things from an appreciative eye. Um, A lot of my ministry in the small church where I served was reminding us that we were enough. We had enough and we were enough to do whatever work God was giving us to do. And it, it regularly turned out that when we felt a little bit stuck, somebody showed up with the right skill or the right time, the right change in their life to make something work that we'd been trying to make work. And that sort of sense of giftedness and being enough is something that I really try to carry through, particularly with my work with search committees and people in the ordination process. You know, these times in communal or individual faith lives where it just seems 
that there is so much potential and so much anxiety about filling it. And to have spent so many years in a congregation that did community beautifully, had rich gifts, and could sell themselves short on that reality. Being able to just know that we have what we need, wherever we are, whatever size we are, has really stuck with me. I convinced myself while I was there that that really is true. I love that, Susie. I just keep thinking that sometimes we don't think we have enough at the larger size parish, or if we had one more staff member for this, or if we did a different thing. And and sometimes we forget about that. And that what does it mean to have enough? And and what do we think is enough? Well, yeah, I mean, it's nobody ever has enough in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. In my small church, we're definitely not going to make it through this year, but then we have some carryover and oh, but next year we have this carryover. We're totally not going to make it. And I didn't know that would be true in a big place, but it certainly is, right? Same thing, bigger numbers, but yeah, we've only gotten 90% of our pledge goal, right? It's a bigger pledge goal, but that is always, always true. There's always enough and it never feels like it. So Kit and Shanna, we end every episode by asking our guests to name something small that has brought big joy in your life. Shanna, you are technically our guest this week. Do you want to start us off? Sure. So church life-wise, we had a parishioner who was very, very involved who died very suddenly, and his family is not religious and chose not to do a service, but there was a whole lot of grief within the community. And so at our regular Wednesday night service, we sort of included prayers for the repose of his soul. And because we were doing that, um, we were able to invite his family. You know, you're not obligated to come. We're doing this for the community. And they came and it was so beautiful to see the way that 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 small congregation, the catechesis congregation, really circled around this family and just told the story of how this man was in our system and how much we all loved him. And, And they really got to see a different part of his life that they had never seen before. It felt like an opportunity for a big community to be like, well, we're too big, sorry. And instead, we just circled around this family and loved them in a way that that really incarnational community absolutely should be. It was the best of us. Because we are a tourist destination, I am becoming a certified tour guide at my church. But one of the things we've been doing is going through the history and planning out what we're teaching every week. And so it's been a great little group of our you know, folks from visitor services, our historian, and some folks who have backgrounds as a tour guide and an architecture. And I kind of advise from a clergy standpoint. And I was unable to make the last meeting on maybe Wednesday. I think Wednesday evening, I went into the big kitchen refrigerator because old habits die hard. One of the parishioners always brings cookies. And they had left a little bag in the refrigerator with my name on it. And I just felt so loved. It was such small church stuff in a large, you know, huge fridge with all of the stuff for all the meals and everything, but just a tiny bag that said kit on it written and underlined. And, and that is, 
that made my day. How about you, Susie? So I don't know that this will translate onto a podcast, but I recently purchased one of those Yeti water bottles, which brings me joy in two ways. One, they go through the dishwasher, which I didn't realize my daughter has one for her sports team. And now that I know they go through the dishwasher, my son and I both have one. But on my water bottle, I have a sticker from Bishop Carrie Schofield Broadbent's consecration in Maryland that she sent to a couple of us at the office that she had made. And it's just one of those little vinyl stickers that you put on laptops or whatever. Uh, And it says, such a time as this. Um, I couldn't attend her consecration, but she's a big fan of this podcast. So I thought I would give her Bishop Carey and her beautiful sticker a little shout out with something giving me joy. For such a time as this. I love that. It's gorgeous, you guys. As always, these are incredible conversations. They're only the beginning of the conversations. And we hope that you have enjoyed this little snippet of of our three experiences moving from smaller parishes into different systems. And we're so particularly grateful for the Reverend Canon Shanna McCauley for joining us. And for the Reverend Susie Schaefer, thank you, Shanna, for joining us. Thank you, Susie, for stewarding this conversation. And most of all, thank you to the Small Churches Big Impact Collective for inviting us back, even though we don't quite fit the small church designation, but that is, I think, where most of our hearts are.